0: Hello, everybody. My name is Richard C. Wilson, founder of the Family Office Club. I've got my friend here with me today, Josh McCallan from Accountable Equity. How are you, Josh?
1: Great. Great to be here. Great community. Thank you so much for all you do with Family Office Club.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I appreciate you being on the podcast uh, maybe a year or 18 months ago, once before. and know you've been part of the Family Office Club for a little while now. And we're having you on here just because I think you're doing something unique in real estate. And I think out of 1,100 members who are all raising capital for something in our investor club, this stands out as kind of a top five or top 10 thing that's just native to my DNA and what we do because we've hosted 150 live events and you're focused on a specific niche of investing. in, And you're going to say it better than me in a second here, but investing in resort properties that have wedding or event venue components in the region that you're focused on. If you can kind of correct what that exact focus nah, you is. You said it
1: beautiful. You right. said it beautifully. I mean, ultimately, our business, Accountable Equity, raises capital. That's the whole idea of investors can get involved in this. But you're right. Our day-to-day business, running resorts, we target properties that have lifestyle components, event components, and especially wedding components, but that are really experiential, totally different than just buying big boxes. You know, we buy special right.
0: Right. So uh, some real estate assets, um, such as multifamily, they're seen as, you know, slap a property manager on it. Maybe there's value added improvements. And you don't want to discredit people that spend their whole lives improving in OI and multifamily. There's a whole skill set to that. Oh, yeah. But I know that in the hospitality and senior living spaces, it's almost as much of an operating business, if not more so than just a real estate Asset, um, how intensive employee wise are these resorts? How operationally intensive is yeah. that for you as an investment firm or oh, investor?
1: You know, I, I love all the training you've you've given over the years. There's a, two ways to look at that. The answer is they are robust businesses. So, do you see that as a negative or a positive? And this is just the two sides of a coin that you choose as uh, you, Ro- Richard, or you, the listener. Is it better that they're a little bit intense as operations, or is it bad? And I'd say it's your choice for us it means i can pull some levers and we literally have a picture of an ancient lever from an old gearbox and i say that allows us to change the revenue if we if we have a business that has many revenue streams we can change it and the magic of commercial real estate means that if i change the noi we force appreciation so we're in the, we're kind of specialists in forcing appreciation through these commercial properties
0: hmm, okay and how many resorts have you invested in to date? And how did you get into your first one?
1: Great question. Two, there's two histories there. One was being a junior partner, a sweat equity partner in the creation of a very strong regional resort business, three properties in one region, a very affluent part of New Jersey. When I left that partnership, with a, uh, our capital position, we became the sponsor of a new company. And we've now done two with two further under contract in the last two and a half years. So what's nice about that is that means we've been in all the current real estate cycles, the boom, the the contraction, and now the trough. I call this the trough of hospitality investing. And so we're seeing a few different cycles and we're succeeding in each. And there's some reasons why.
0: Cool. And then um, in terms of your execution on the project? Are you looking for things that are highly distressed and shambles and you renovate it and you do a lot of construction? Or are you looking for things that operationally are not going well, but there's not a lot of real estate renovation and capital expense in the hard asset component of it?
1: Yeah. Fair, fair question. Great question. We will do both. At this point, we... We usually like a sizable amount of construction requirement, because that allows us to take historic, a lot of our properties are pretty mature, they're, they're historic, they have made it through since the depression. So there's a lot of longevity to the things we buy. I kind of like that being in the DNA of that property, somehow it's made it through generations. But that always means there's functional obsolescence to the spaces, to the meeting spaces, to the wedding spaces. They don't look right to today's bride. So there's a certain opportunity if we can buy something that needs physical construction, because we'll get the price at the below current repositioned. And then we will use today's best practices to position those renovations for money making. You know, there's a time I, I'm looking at a property right now where a gentleman bought it eight, 15 years ago but he was 70 years old when he bought it. So he renovated it, but okay. he did it in a functionally obsolescent way. So we're looking at buying it now, 15 years later with a lot of repositioning, cause it's kind of not fit.
0: Right, I would guess you do cost-sig studies on these? Always. You, yeah, yeah. And, we're, and, um, we're, we're,
1: we're firm believers in making it tax efficient for our investors and we do cost segregation.
0: Okay, and then down the road, I would guess that some of these properties may qualify in the future for um, historical tax credits potentially something that you probably have in your mind since you literally use the word historic and you're on the on the ball in terms of tax strategies, right?
1: We are. That one strategy, I'm on the t- ball of making sure our investors have efficient flows of income with very minimal taxable consequences. But I'm not, I'll be very honest, I'm not an expert on the historic tax credits because uh, first of all, we're looking at two that are technically would qualify, but I've also been cautioned. It's it's like a pro pl- and con because if you have to keep it functionally obsolescent, Meaning in its current shape, then what's the better choice? And so I would say we're technically not experts on the historic tax credit. Sure. We, sure. We're looking, anybody who's listening who wants to call me and advise us, we, we would like that.
0: I've got, um, we've been doing this 100 tax expert interview series, and we've got uh, two different experts in the area, and we'd be happy to um, just equip you with the right people just so when the right scenario comes along, it's usually never smart to never do them or to always do them, you know, it might restrict you or not be the right plan for the property, but we're happy to connect you to the experts we've found along the way. And, um, and to
1: your point though, just to make a, a point, uh, an exclamation point, our renovation concept is that we're restoring the soul of the property. We have this whole vision of hospitality. So we actually think it's important to restore them appropriate to their architecture and their heart, like the soul, right. but tweak it. So it's incredibly appealing to today's guest. So therefore, historic tax credits would actually probably work a lot of times. We just sure. have to get into it a little better.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, I know it can delay a project uh, because of approvals, and that can hurt the IRR for an investor or hurt how fast they get the income back from a property. So it could be a trade-off that um, could cause more pain than benefit in some cases, I think, if you're not careful from what I've heard. Um, also, I'm just wondering, I've seen families buy a hotel that has the food and beverage You know, included in the price, maybe it's always been a dog or it's an operational piece that the family's not great at and they'll buy it and then resell out that F&B to get it off the balance sheet to make their total acquisition price lower. In your case, you may or may not have a restaurant uh, on site at many of the resorts that are big enough, but I would guess a lot of times that restaurant and kitchen is serving the exciting operational piece, the wedding catering you know you get to charge the 100 bucks for scrambled eggs or you know whatever per plate for people who want the dream wedding so i would guess you're not splitting that out because that's how you grow that noi in a real estate business cap rates are so low you're actually being rewarded more by including things and you'd actually look to include more rather than exclude, I would guess in most cases. So you're not splitting stuff out. I'm guessing post-close or
1: Yeah. yeah, Thank you for asking that question. A lot of investors out there who've decided there's probably people listening today that have considered buying a few properties in the resort space for their own benefit, like as a trophy or as a gift. And they've always been cautioned by their friends (laughs) but the food and beverage will kill you. Yeah. The rooms are where the profitability tend to be. It tends to be, however, about five, six years ago, after we had really exploded the wealth of uh, the, and the success of those properties on the beach and all that, it came around the crux of the food and beverage It allowed us to change the catering revenue, which was exponentially profitable. And it also allowed us to change the seasonality because we're, we like to operate, we like to buy, efficient projects sometimes they're in the northeast which means seasonality so if we buy seasonality how do we mitigate seasonality and food and beverage can be a real key you can create events you can drive traffic through catering but you can also create festivals and that's one of the big success stories we had during corona was we pivoted into festivals outdoor and because we were expert at food and beverage and i mean millions and millions and millions of dollars of food and beverage multiple restaurant concepts And we had to learn how to become experts and how to hire the right chefs and the culinary teams and the sales. So we pivoted specifically during Corona into festivals outside. But years ago, I came up with this thought process. It's a kind of a mental thing, even though we all love the rooms and the room rents and how fast you can drive them up and how flexible you can be to demand cycles. We make our money by running food and beverage successfully, because if you don't, it destroys your rooms. So we said, what if we look at ourselves as food and beverage experts first and room second? Not because we don't love rooms, but because it, it shifts your focus and your energy into what is more, in a sense, challenging. But right. once you overcome that, now the rooms look so easy. And all you're doing there is scientific revenue management, which right. is powerful what we've been able to achieve with that. But you can't do that if everybody dislikes your property. So you got to get the food and beverage right first.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And I know we had a, um, a resort come up in Florida recently and the family said, oh, we want to offload of this resort. Um, I said, great, you know, I want to connect you to Josh. And they said, oh, let us think about whether we really want to do that or not. And, you know, um, I got to learn through that process that you guys sometimes look at resorts and kind of that five to 10 million range or six to 9 million range you might've said. Can you uh, specify a little bit more what geographies sure. you prefer, or what size of venues, et cetera, in case someone listening here wants yep. to sell sell what they have?
1: Yeah, that's actually a great point. Anyone who can bring us a bird dog deal too right now, we are buyers. We have five under uh, current investigation through uh, due diligence, but we have two in LOI. And the price range, I might have said to you, we've done really well with 5 to $10 million acquisitions. Yep. The first two were like that but they're both now valued almost at 20 million each. Uh, so they've had a match. So my point is we're looking more now at the 20 to $40 million purchase. Okay. Um, of course we'll take a sweet spot South of 10 million if it, if it fits, but, uh, we we love that anywhere, let's say from 10 to, to 40 million right now would be an ideal purchase. Okay. And our geography is based on, um, we've kind of developed a national niche uh, expertise in weddings. I mean, we've sold more weddings at one of our properties than anybody in the country, 700 weddings in the last 24 months. It sounds crazy. It sounds impossible until you realize it's 240 acres with five ballrooms and outdoor gardens. And it's nothing like you've ever seen before, but that's that winery one that you and I talk about. But, but my point is that wedding expertise has put us on, a trajectory where put us in a market we'll do the due diligence based on weddings and i can do okay. a very solid p l or a pro, a pro forma p l based on that not because we're only a wedding venue but because we can almost secure mathematically leads to conversions to profits to deposits and that really stabilizes the pro forma and allows investors right. a lot of peace of mind before we even buy it
0: right right excellent yeah that's great what is the um, most counterintuitive or surprising thing you've learned about investing in resort properties that's not obvious to anyone looking at the space on the outside?
1: Hmm. I would say that nine out of ten people I talk to think of it more in terms of what the market will give you and the most counterintuitive thing about the reason we'd be able to create wealth through resorts and not just revenue is because we look at the self-generated demand that that a resort can can hold. So therein lies the most counterintuitive thing is that we really only want to buy resort style assets, not necessarily Mm -hmm. hotels and not necessarily box hotels like a Hampton Inn. Those can only make profit if the market gives it to them, whereas Mm -hmm. we can make profit through
0: sales. And those are- Right. Yeah. Great point. I think, you know, smart family offices- can be nimble, agile, and they have ways to add value. So in a down market, they buy at discounted prices and they add value. On an up market, the valuation of their properties rise and they can add value. And it comes down to their strategy and consistently adding value in a unique way or playing a unique game in the marketplace versus just having some beta ETF type index exposure to things. And some people don't get that and they say, oh, well, Investing in real estate, that's not smart to do now. I mean, cap rates are low. It's like, well, if cap rates are low, then every dollar of NOI you create, you get 20 times valuation. That's better than a publicly traded company in some cases, right? So um, yeah, I love that answer. That's a good, good point. It comes back to why anyone listening to this who's a private investor, if you're just randomly investing in things and you're not creating a family charter document and values and mission and objectives and figuring out your wealth creation story and your unique ability, as Dan Sullivan would say, and and dialing things in. So, you know, your strike zone and coming up with your own strategies, then you're just allocating passively or hopefully hopefully finding some, some focused smart strategies that will do well. But, um, most families don't create great wealth or defend it. Well, just by being passive all the time, everyone created their wealth for a reason. Typically. It's not just luck. Um, So using that as part of an investment strategy is so critical. Um, So Josh, so I see in our future, I hope that, you know, you you have great success. Seems like you've got great momentum now. And I hope that Family Office Club is hosting an event in one of your resorts at some point or that I could bring my wife and kids to come check a couple of them out at some point. Um, Any last comments just on the industry or on uh, anything else you'd like to share today?
1: Yeah, the industry is maligned. And we say take that as a Warren Buffett moment. Is it maligned forever? Or is this the time the time to strike? And it's also there's also something else that's going on. We are getting expanding cap rates, if you want to think of it that way. We're buying at a discount sometimes. And we're going into assets and others can do this. A family office can follow our blueprint. I actually wrote a brief little ebook if they ever wanted to called the 10 Steps to Building Wealth with Resort Hospitality Assets. You can have it for free on our website. And that way you can see the DNA that we use or the analysis we use when looking at properties, uh, some of which we've touched on here today, but you can get that at accountableequity.com and you can download that book.
0: Okay. Great. Well, obviously anyone listening, um, you know, first of all, I want to point out that Josh isn't paying to be a sponsor here. I'm just genuinely curious and to try to use my own business just to learn more and be a little bit smarter of an investor myself. And we know a lot about events. So that's why I wanted Josh to come on here. Um, but second of all, obviously, if you hear of anything on our podcast, obviously you have to complete your normal due diligence. It's not a, anything you hear on a podcast being already due diligence approved, et cetera, just like every other episode that you listen to here. But um, this is definitely interesting and something I want to keep tabs on. So I look forward to meeting in person uh, Josh here soon. And I guess if anyone wants to check out what he's up to or has an asset, they could look at it's just AccountableEquity.com. I guess it's a place to go to get that ebook or connect with Josh and his team. So thank you very much, Josh. Appreciate your time here today.
1: Thank you, buddy.